Blog Talk Radio. The cry for democracy continues to spread through the Mideast and Africa. And here in the U.S., we have our own peaceful protests as conservative lawmakers try to take away long-cherished rights, all in the name of deficit reduction. Good day and welcome to Mamacrats Mama Chat, brought to you by BubbleGenius.com. I'm Donna Schwartz-Mills, also known as SoCal Mom, and today's Mamacrats are Cinematic of K-12 News Network, J-List Judy of Care2.com and State of Discontent, and Julie Pipert of Zoetica Media and Using My Words. Plus, we'll be joined later by Kelsey Collier-Wise of DakotaWomen.com. But first, ladies, um, can you believe the news, the way the world is just seems to be changing right before our our eyes. It reminds me of uh, back a few years ago um, when I was, of course, just a mere infant, and the Berlin Wall came down. And all of a sudden it felt like all of the oppression that we had grown up with our entire childhood, those of us who were alive back then, um, you know, was, was melting away. And it felt like all of a sudden all of that give peace a chance was actually coming true and that we were actually going to be you know, one world at peace, you know, with freedom and all of that. And, you know, I, I, hate, I hate what's happening and that there's so much violence to the current protest, but it's, it's also kind of a, an optimistic time for me. Is that just me, or, or do you guys feel that a little bit too? No, I, I definitely feel the same way, Julie. Um, I, I feel really inspired by the fortitude and the determination of these protesters um, across North Africa and the Middle East who are trying to make positive change in their countries. And personally, I hope that it marks a permanent shift in U.S. foreign policy because for far too long we've been you know, forging these relationships of convenience with dictators um, you know, like Gaddafi. And it's been causing, I think, you know, it's been a situation where we've been willing to compromise with people who do not support uh, democratic values in the name of short-term gains economically or short-term uh, security issues. And I, and I feel like, you know, the people in these countries like Libya and Egypt are showing us that there is another way, and we don't have to put up with these petty dictators these people who are, you know, oppressing their own citizens. And, and I, I hope that, you know, as, as appalled by I am, as I am by the violence that I'm seeing, um, and, and as much as I worry about the people in these countries, I, I do have a lot of hope that they will be able, um, you know, to create um, sustainable change. Jaleth and Judy, I, I totally agree. It just broke my heart the other night when I was looking, peeking into Twitter and I saw that, you know, in Libya the, you know, sort of pro-Qaddafi thugs had come out and were shooting on um, the assembled crowd, et cetera. And, you know, it's just agonizing to, to read that and know that actual blood is being shed, that, you know, there is a terrible price to be paid for um for this kind of uprising but at the same time I absolutely agree that it it is um incredibly inspiring and and I think what might be kind of interesting and I need to dig up the actual statistic is that um in a lot of these countries where there is this kind of uprising 
Um, they, they're very young countries. I think in a in an interesting way, it's kind of a youth movement. Um, it's not solely a youth movement, but you know, very often um, you have populations where you know the number of people under the age of 30 is like incredibly high, like an incredibly high percentage of the overall population, and. Um, and so I think you know there's always something very inspiring about that, and um, and I think the way that we're all sort of electronically connected in theory now, um, I think just really also helps us um, kind of take whatever you know inspiration and wisdom we can from that. And and one thing that um, you know kind of brought a tear to my eye the other day, which I saw on Facebook, was a, a photograph of um, an Egyptian protester with a sign he was holding up saying, um, you know, uh, uh, Egypt supports Wisconsin, Wisconsin workers, you know, you're next you know, yeah. for workers or something yeah. like that. And it was just like, oh, my God, you know, a, t- a tear came to my eye because oh yeah, I just thought that was so um, amazing that we are, are so closely watching them, as Donna pointed out on our Facebook wall at Momcrats. Um, and and they're watching us, you know. They're they're also keenly interested to to know what's going on. So, well, um, and I think especially I think that's especially moving considering the fact that you know in Egypt they were fighting to overthrow a dictatorship, and I think mm-hmm. the conditions that they were working against were much harsher than anything we deal with here in the United States. And the fact yeah. that they would still have room in their hearts, you know, some of the Egyptian protesters to feel a sense of solidarity with workers here in the United States who are fighting for their rights but are in a much better position. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that's really that's really big hearted of yeah. know, the people of Egypt yeah. to feel that way. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm I was sorry. just going to say, and, and I, I, on the BBC yesterday, it was incredible because they had a reporter in Libya who was reporting back, and she said in the northern section, they they actually had overcome Gaddafi's uh, militia. And wow. They, they, she said the people were in the street, and they were talking, and she said, what is everybody talking about? And, and the people said, we're talking about everything. This is the first time in some of their lives they had been able to ever speak freely in the streets wow. with one another. Wow. And they, and they that's, thought about. The, and that's kind of what I wanted to bring up, too. I don't know if you guys were listening to the news this morning, but apparently the eastern end of Libya is now um, in control of the pro-democracy people. The army there defected to their side. <gasps> wow. And the general, wow. The general I, over there said that it was exactly the overreaction of Gaddafi to the people in the capital that made him, made him support the democracy supporters. And apparently they were shooting people with rocket <gasps> missiles. Oh. Oh, wow. And he said, that's it. That's it. I'm done. And um, the eastern end of Libya right now is in control of the pro-democracy forces. Did any of you, so, any, incredible. Um, yeah. did any of you see Richard Engel's report on the Today Show this morning? No, He's the no, MSNBC's I... foreign correspondent, and he was there. Um, I, you know, Richard Engel is in my opinion, a really brave guy. He goes to all these conflicts. He was in Egypt right in the thick of things uh, during the most violent part of the protests there. And, of course, he's been stationed in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, embedded with uh, troops there Mm -hmm. in the past. And 
I don't know. Richard Engel is always so unflappable, and and his hair is always perfect. And we were talking about the show. I was saying before before <laughs> the show, I mentioned you guys. Right, he does. He's fluent in Arabic, and which is great. Um, but I I I kind of assess the level of chaos in it, or or the seriousness of the situation by how well his hair is coiffed on a particular day. <laughs> because it seems like he can, you know, there can be bombs going off in the distance, and his hair is perfect. And I have to say, today his hair was a bit must, so I would say Richard Engel hair threat level five in Libya today. <laughs> but the important thing um, that I noticed when he was speaking was that he was surrounded by a group of, uh, I guess, you know, opposition forces who are trying to take down Libya's leadership, uh, the pro-democracy forces. And it was this motley crew of, you know, village guys. There was this guy who looked like someone out of a James Bond movie. I mean, he was seven feet tall, 300 pounds, and holding an enormous gun. But they were standing there right next to these military members also who were still in uniform, who had been supplying um, local people with weapons to defend themselves against the government forces. And what what really struck me was how despite the fact that these people were armed, you know, and, and they looked very serious, um, they, they were speaking very calmly to this reporter from the United States. And they were, they were very, you know, they, it seemed like they were welcoming the U.S. press presence there and trying to get their message out that they want to make a change. And, I, you know, I think that's really important because it seems to me that a lot of people in this country have the misconception that everyone in North Africa and everyone in the Middle East hates us, <laughs> right? I mean, obviously, none of us here have that misconception, but it seems like, you know, on Fox News, there's this narrative peddled that, um, especially on the Glenn Beck show recently, when he's been going on with all this crazy stuff about how the Muslims are trying to create a new caliphate in North no, Africa brother. and they're going to take over the world, right? All this conspiracy <laughs> craziness. Well, you know, um, it seems to me in Egypt, when the revolution happened there, um the U.S. press was welcomed with open arms by the the anti-Mubarak protesters, and the violence that occurred against um, members of the U.S. press was committed by the pro-government, pro-dictatorship forces there. Mm. And I and think I that's feel an like interesting point, Jay. I I I know that um, I know Donna wants to get to opening the phone lines really quickly, so. Um, Donna, do you want to make an announcement about opening the phone lines and then we can complete this point and move on to talking about the people and taking back the government power? Yes, we are going to take live callers and our number is 347-945-6465. So if you have a comment to say about what's happening in the Middle East, in Libya and Africa, um, please feel free to call us, 347-945-6465. I think what, I think what you're talking about, Jay, is, is just an absolutely fascinating point because what it does is it plays off the idea of where do the leaders stand in relation to one another representing the countries versus where do the average citizens and the people of that nation stand with regard to how they feel about other nations. And I think that right now what we're seeing on a multitude of levels are the people saying enough is enough. It's time for our leaders to actually represent us. It's time for the leaders to actually do what we want, not what's politically expeditious for them 
or what what you know works for their personal agenda. And I think that you know seeing that in in uh, Egypt, I think it's incredibly emotional for me because I contrast it to Tiananmen Square, where the military did step in. There was a terrible massacre and a terrible tragedy, and it caused the people to back down. This time, even in the threat of the face of violence, people are committed and they're like, we'll take the risk and we're not going to back down. And I think it's an interesting thing to consider in relation to what's going on, for example, in Madison right now, where we've got a governor threatening the workers. um, If the Democrats don't come back and do what he wants to do and the people saying we're not going home, we're not stepping down. What do you think about that with the people kind of saying no? Threaten us as you will. We're not backing down because we know if we do, you'll get away with it, but we're going to stand strong here. Yeah, I think this this really started with public employees, and it's it's catching fire not just in Madison, Wisconsin. Woohoo! I'm a badger. Just had to say that. <laughs> but um, also, you know, it's spreading to Indiana and Ohio, where the governors there, Republicans, um, have gotten the notion with the backing of the Republican legislatures that they are going to uh, likewise remove collective bargaining from union agreements, basically taking away sort of the raison d'etre of a, u- a union to exist, basically, yeah. right? To to engage in collective bargaining on on their own, on the members' behalf. So uh, I think that um, you know I think there's kind of like this larger question of legitimacy, and I almost see it as sort of voters' remorse, <laughs> you know, um, where um, a lot of people were sleeping out to lunch, just whatever, in terms of the Democratic base uh, in the 2010 elections. And so now we've had a very rude wake-up call of, like, what happens basically when you have a Republican governor pushing, you know, what I consider a very hard-right agenda um, that echoes, you know, sort of the national hard-right agenda of the national GOP. And, you know, then you've got the legislatures, which are just sort of lining up behind the governor. Um, so, I mean, I think there's there's really kind of a question of legitimacy here because, as I seem to recall, a lot of these folks were campaigning on, you know, job creation, where are the jobs, uh, fix the economy, and now it's now that you know, barely two months into after the swearing ins, et cetera, we're we're back to culture wars and attacks yeah. like you know, the middle class. Well, and I think you know the interesting thing about the situation in Wisconsin too is that I've read reports that say that. Um, the state was actually in a pretty good position budget-wise to meet its obligations until the governor passed a bill earlier this year um, granting tax cuts to businesses in the state. And apparently the size of the tax cuts that he he, uh, gave out to businesses in the name of stimulating the economy, you know, that, that would more than cover uh, continuing to pay for pensions and benefits for state workers and teachers. And so I I feel like you're right, Sin, this is a an ideological battle more than a battle about the actual financial situation in some of these states. I saw Governor Chris Christie on television earlier this morning of New Jersey, and he was applauding um, the Republican agenda in Wisconsin and applauding 
uh, you know, this action that's being taken against unions, which, again, you know, we should clarify, the unions have said that they are fully willing to negotiate with the state of Wisconsin on their benefits. That's not an issue. They're not trying to prevent the state from cutting benefits entirely. They would like to speak about it, but they, you know, they want to preserve what they can, but they understand that the budget Mm -hmm. is in crisis. This is is about taking away the collective bargaining power of the people of the state um, who who are members of unions. And, you know, I've seen again and again these other Republican politicians like Chris Christie praise this specifically in the context of we need to make a permanent change. What what Chris Christie said this morning was he said, um, this is the new normal. This economy that we're in now is the new normal, and we have to make a change. We We can't keep our old commitments. This is what he said. He said the state needs to break its old commitments, which, first of all... Unfortunately, its old commitments are to the people. And right, right, exactly. They continue to cut funding to programs that are not going to help the economy at all. When they come yeah. up, and I saw this across the board, cutting programs to provide health services to low-income people at the poverty level and below... Now, the problem with that is those people are not going to cease and assist in having health problems and health care needs. That means we're going to have an influx, an increase of patients going to the emergency room sicker because they've waited later, and that's already a health care crisis, by the way, people using the emergency rooms as health care providers for main things. So the prevention care is going to be gone. The catch-it-early care is going to be gone. We're going to have an even bigger increase in emergency rooms, which is going to cause a huge health care crisis. And I keep reiterating this point. People don't understand. They think, I don't want to pay for the poor to get health care. They need to go get jobs and get their own health care. I understand what they're trying to say with that, but it's short-sighted thinking. Anybody at any point in their life can have a bad time, and even my favorite little Republican neighbor has, you know, benefited from some good health care services provided and funded by the state. And I know that the important thing there is that when people don't have access to that, whether it's short-term or long-term, and for most people it's a short-term solution, they're going to go use the hospital. When they use the hospital, you pay more. You're going to pay anyway. And it's frustrating to me that these governors continue to cut sources of revenue. The bill that passed the House, what did it cut? A huge source of revenue from the EPA going out and getting fees that are fines from EPA violators. Why do we continue to cut revenue sources? It's it's a crazy backwards economics thing to me. And to call it a quote-unquote modest proposal, all I can <laughs> Jonathan Swift. Every time I think of Jonathan yeah. Swift, let the Irish eat their children. It's yeah. it's it's ridiculous. I don't know. Well, I you know what you were saying. I'm sorry. Oh, um, no, what yeah. you were saying, um, Julie, about the the healthcare issue and how short sighted it is. There is also a societal need to make sure that diseases are controlled. My brother-in-law is an epidemiologist and works for his county health department. And I mean. If there is an epidemic, you know, like when we were all scared about the swine flu, 
you know, you want to make sure that people can get vaccinated, that people can see doctors. You know, there's a whooping cough epidemic here in California, you know, and it's mostly people can't afford to see the doctor. You want to be able to get these people care before it spreads through the general population. Well, you know, not only only is it important for everyone in the country to have access to care in order to, for, for the very public health reasons that you're mentioning, um, I also think it's especially important, you know, thinking back on the situation in Wisconsin when they're trying to cut health care benefits to teachers and firefighters. Oh, <laughs> you know, those are the last people we want out sick. You know, these people these people support support the rest of our society and, and help us get through the day and and you know, I think that um I've heard a lot of conservatives commentators say, oh, well, it's time for these public employees to pull their own weight and pay for their own health care like the rest of us. Well, the rest of us can barely afford health care. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't, I think, I think what we ought to be saying is it's time for everyone in this country to be able to afford health care. And this should not be yes. the new normal. We shouldn't accept, we should not accept the current state of economic crisis and the crisis in our health care system as normal. I, and right. I really, I really want to follow on that point, Jaylith, because I agree 1,000%. This is cinematic. And I really have a hard time with the framing of all of these budget cut issues and how we've all just sort of fallen into accepting that framing because nowhere has anyone pointed out that we do have another option open to us, which is getting more revenue. <laughs> now, first yeah, of all, to the revenue. <laughs> you know, first of all, we, you know, military military spending and defense spending and, you know, the fact that we're em- embroiled in one and a half <laughs> um, you know, misadventures overseas, um we're still you know, entangled there in Afghanistan. We're still very much um have a presence in Iraq and and that is costing us you know, literally trillions of dollars, right? And so, but for some reason, military spending, defense spending, that's never the first to go on the block. So I feel like, you know, the budget cuts um, are a convenient frame to always focus on sort of domestic spending. And, of course, you know, these cuts fall hardest on the poor, you know, um, and people of color, women, children, you know, sort of the people in society who have sort of the least uh, amount of, of political and social power. Um, and I think the other thing that I really want to point out is that um, there's a very interesting little movement afoot which seems to be gaining some momentum. And it started in, in the UK. It's called UK Uncut. And it's basically where people in England, you know, um, realized that, you know, there were tremendous cuts in public housing and education. You know, the college students over there are rioting <laughs> because, uh, you know, the, the wonderful education system has sustained these really horrible cuts. So um, they've been protesting, and it came to the attention of many people that a particular social program which was being cut was like, you know, £6 billion or something like that. But at the same time, Vodafone, which is a U.K. corporation, um, had, you know, skimped on paying corporate taxes to the extent of six billion pounds. So people were sort of doing a one-to-one comparison and saying, if they had paid the taxes, which they are responsible for, if they had not been able to skate through loopholes and, you know, evade by, you know, technically being headquartered in Monaco or whatever, you know, Liechtenstein or what have you, then, um, you know, they would have to pay up and there would be no free ride for corporations. So, 
it's it, they've been having protests in England. They're very effective. They've been talking about you know bailouts for the banks, but no bailouts for regular people, which oddly enough sounds very familiar here, and. Um, and so the movement is, again, kind of internationalizing, and it's spreading to the United States. And this very weekend, on February 26th, there are going to be the first demonstrations um, against various targets uh, where, again, corporations have been allowed to slide. And, um, you know, we're expecting middle-class people to be cut, like middle-class people like teachers, firefighters, other first responders, you know, regular folk, and uh and yet corporations are allowed to slide by. Banks have been bailed out to, you know, the tune of how many billions of dollars, and there's been no kind of accountability or um, even just sort of paying, you know, your fair share. So I think it's going to be kind of interesting. It's They're on Facebook. It's There's the U.K. uncut, if you want to peek and see what uh, they've been up to in England, and then there's U.S. uncut, and they've been getting more and more chapters organized across the country. So, um, you know, I think that's kind of like another way to look at these sort of budget cuts and to break out of the framing of, you know, oh, everybody has to, you know, tighten the belt. It's austerity time. And, and you, most of all, middle class, <laughs> even though you have nothing left to give, you, you know, you have to tighten your belt the most. So yeah. um, this is another way to say, no, actually, if other people paid their fair freight, then we might not be in such dire circumstances. We wouldn't be well, completely out of the hole, but we might not be in such dire circumstances. And, Cynthia, something you said uh, points to another topic we're thinking of, we've been talking about covering on today's show. Um, you were talking about how these cuts affect women and minorities um, often most severely, and and we've been talking about how, you know, right now the GOP is focused on these ideological differences uh, rather than helping the economy. And one of the things that we talked about um, in a previous recent Mama Crest Mama Chat show was the GOP's current war on women and how uh, a lot of state-level legislatures and, um, you know, the House of Representatives as well have been trying to cur- curtail women's rights um, focusing on abortion, anti-abortion legislation rather than um, the economic policy that they claimed during the election would be their first goal once they got into office. So um, I think we have a guest on the show today, Donna. We do. Kelsey Collier-Wise, she is one of the Dakota women, dakotawomen.com. She's a fourth-generation South Dakotan and an adjunct law professor and another momocrat because she is uh, raising a beautiful feminist in training. Kelsey, are you there? Hello, Kelsey? Kelsey, are you on? Yes, I'm here. Oh, oh there you are. Okay. <laughs> Welcome. Hi there. So, um, Kelsey, tell us what's happening in South Dakota. What happened last week? Well, last week, um, as uh, a lot of people probably heard about because we were making some pretty big headlines uh, nationally, uh, there was a bill called uh, HB 1171, um, which originally uh, was kind of uh, a self-defense bill for pregnant women where they could use uh, defense of a fetus as um, as kind of a, a self-defense measure if they were charged with murder or assault. Uh, it was then what we call in South Dakota hog-housed, where basically it's almost completely changed. Um, 
to include uh, provisions that would allow anyone related to the woman to defend the fetus um, and basically left a big loophole open for violence against uh, providers, um, clinic personnel, you know, the taxi driver (laughs) that drives a woman to the clinic, just about anyone. Um, And uh, so that made a lot of headlines. Luckily, the the national pressure and and the pressure within the state were enough that the sponsor uh, was willing to drop it, and uh, it was recently tabled, which basically means that it's out of play at this point. But uh, there was another. um, They followed that up with another bill, didn't they? Yeah, we've got another bill that's going through the process as well. Um, That's HB 1217, and uh, we've been having a lot of informed consent fights um, around abortion in South Dakota, and that's true across the country. Um, But one of our recent informed consent laws is making its way through the Eighth Circuit um, because it's kind of crazy and onerous. And then uh, this one is an extension of that, which would require women to visit uh, crisis pregnancy centers before they could actually have their procedure, uh, as well as instituting a 72-hour waiting period. So um, it's definitely above and beyond anything that exists in the country right now, and that was passed by the uh, House yesterday. So it uh, will go on to Senate committee next week. What This is cinematic. What do you think the uh, chances are for passage in the Senate? We think that there's a chance of stopping it in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, there's mm-hmm. some really good people in that committee, um, but there are also some wild cards that we just don't know about. Um, if it gets through Senate Judiciary, it will probably be passed on the Senate floor. So really, this committee is kind of the one place to stop it. Uh-huh. Kelsey, I've also um, just been reading around and, and hearing that um, a lot of the issue is not, well, uh, the the consent issue is is always a roadblock that mm-hmm. um the anti-choice right always loves to throw up but i think there's it's kind of compounded by the fact that south dakota is very sparsely populated and so there's kind of the issue of like well how many places are there available within the state to get an abortion in the first place and so therefore if you're now making women wait you know, an extra week, an extra two weeks. We all know that, you know, there is really a window in which it's it's best to perform the abortion, you know, to mm-hmm. sort of minimize any consequences, physical consequences on the body, et cetera. And so, um, you know, it, it, really, it really seems to come down to um, throwing up those blocks and barriers in a, in a sort of quiet, sideways way yeah. of, of making it really impossible. Well, definitely. I mean, informed consent is, you know, it, it's the the term that they use, but it, it's not true informed consent in the the legal or medical sense. Um, it's, you know, if if this were were passed and actually went into effect, which seems unlikely, you know, it would be challenged. But if it were to go into effect, um, it would be a de facto ban for most women in South Dakota. Uh, the the only um, kind of regular provider of abortions. Obviously, there are always private doctors that will do abortions in some circumstances, but um, for most elective abortions, people go to the Planned Parenthood in Sioux Falls, which is the largest city in the state. It's the only place to get an elective abortion. It's in the very southeast corner of the state, um, meaning, you know, up to five, six hundred miles from some women. Um, And so the idea of having to travel there 
you know, go to several, basically to the doctor, then to the crisis pregnancy center, then back to the doctor, you know, over the course of three days, um, you need to think about getting time off of work and childcare and all of that. Plus, you know, there is only abortion days, maybe once a week, because the the doctors are flown in from Minneapolis. I mean, that basically creates a ban for most women. That's not a, a barrier that most women are going to be able to overcome. For the women who live in Sioux Falls, you know, maybe they would still be able to access that, but the majority of South Dakota women don't live in Sioux Falls, so... Now, I, I seem to remember, and I want to invite anyone who's listening live to join us on a call um, with Kelsey right now. Uh, the number is 347-945-6465. So if uh, anyone wants to you know, join in and, and has a comment or a question, um, especially for our guest, Kelsey, please do call in right now. Um, I did want to ask, though, um, I seem to remember that Wilma Mankiller, when she was alive, I believe it was her, that she had a very sort of crafty way of saying, um, I think there was a an issue in the legislature about, you know, would thus and such state, um, you know, be able to pass a, a, a comprehensive ban on abortions within the state, et cetera. And so she did something very clever, which was to say on Native American reservations, which operate under slightly different rules of jurisdiction, so on and so forth, that um, that abortions would be able to be performed there. So I guess it's sort of a two-part question, which is I wonder what um, abortion access and just general women's reproductive health access is like for the native population in the state. And then, you know, I don't know if there would be any sort of um, way to kind of be crafty and wily in the way that, um, you know, this leader did and and said that, you know, she was going to make, you know, her reservation available for um, anyone as a sort of like, you know, to make a kind of amnesty sort of, territory um, for anyone who wanted those kinds of services. Mm -hmm. It was actually um, uh, Chief Cecilia Firethunder. Oh, Um, yes. I'm sorry. Completely confused the the leaders. No problem. Um, And, yes, during the the 2006 uh, proposed abortion ban, um, she had kind of put that out there as an idea because, obviously, um, the state doesn't have jurisdiction uh, on, you know, in Indian country on tribal lands. Um, Unfortunately, uh, that actually got her in quite a bit of trouble with her tribal council, and um, mm. she is no longer the chief. Uh, I think theoretically, you know, something like that could happen, but you know, the the support isn't necessarily there, and certainly the resources uh, for building a clinic at this mm-hmm. point aren't there. Um, definitely, Native women are affected, you know, hugely by. Uh, the current state of health care in South Dakota or, I mean, in the, in the nation as a whole. Um, you know, we've, they do have uh, Indian health services on a lot of the reservations, but um, those are maybe in one community on an entire reservation. Um, and, you know, those facilities obviously don't provide abortions. So, you know, a Native woman living um, on Cheyenne, the Cheyenne River Reservation would have to travel, you know, hundreds of miles to get to Sioux Falls. Uh, mm-hmm. for an abortion. Um, I think three of the five poorest counties in the nation uh, are in South Dakota, and those are reservation counties. Um, so you're also talking about a great deal of uh, of poverty. Um, right. And so, you know, I mean, sometimes it's even an issue of not having a vehicle 
mm-hmm. be able to mm-hmm. get from those places to Sioux Falls. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it is a real issue, um, and it's an issue of, of, you know, like you were discussing earlier, health care overall. I mean, there's a lack of health care overall, and it's not just abortion care, and it's not just right. in South Dakota. It's a lack of health care altogether. Right. Okay, I think Jayla's uh, had a question. Yeah, Kelsey, I was wondering, what do you think the mood is among average women right now about this bill? Um, are are people aware in the state uh, that, that this barrier is possibly going to be put up mm-hmm. that could affect a lot of women? Generally, I feel it? like there's, there's a, a lot of awareness and um, a lot of impatience, you know, uh, we've gone through two election cycles where abortion was all that anyone talked about. It was on the TV and it was in the mail and it was, you know, it was everywhere. And people are frankly kind of sick of it. Um, they feel like this has been decided and they don't want to go through it again. But yet year after year, you know, there is a small minority that won't give up on it. Um, certainly, I, you know, I'm part of certain uh crowd that probably talks about this more than than everyone else and so sometimes um i feel like maybe i'm a little insulated thinking that like this is all anyone cares about but i do think that overall you know and you see this in the letters to the editor and the editorials and things like that um the general sense is that this has been decided and you know we've got a budget crisis in our state right now they're discussing you know 10 percent cuts to education and to medicaid and uh so the fact that we're wasting time on things like this, I think, is just frustrating to people. I was wondering um, to what extent you're able to determine that a lot of the <clears throat> organizing and or financial backing for a lot of this anti-choice um, legislation comes from out of state. And I guess sort of flipping the question on its head a little bit, I'm sort of wondering how it is that um, people who are not in the state can support and help pro-choice efforts that are going on and, and the organizing that is going on. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people sort of have this sense that, you know, South Dakota is just like this fertile breeding ground for horrible anti-choice everything. But, in fact, a lot of a lot of this does come from out of state. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the bills uh, come from these legislative conferences that, you know, legislators from all over the country go to and they get these model bills, you know, their heads are filled with nonsense, and then they bring them back and uh, attempt to solve problems that states don't actually have. Um, And uh, specifically, there's an attorney named Harold Cassidy who um, has been associated with the Thomas Thomas More Law Center, which is an anti-choice law center. He was the uh, attorney in the Baby M case, which is sort of the the big surrogacy case um, that's in all the the contract textbooks now, mm-hmm. um, and he has been very involved in pushing many of these bills. He testified on 1217. Um, he was here pushing the original abortion bans. Um, he's at, from New Jersey, but he spends an awful lot of time in South Dakota. And so, you know, there's definitely out-of-state influences, and, uh, you know, it's, it's cheap to do a lot of things here. It's cheap to run campaigns here um, because of the geography it's sort of easy to get away with um, doing crazy things in Pierre because there's not a, a large population base that the the legislators have to answer to right away. You know, there's a lot of things that make it advantageous for um, these out-of-state interests to push their agenda on our state. 
Um, but there is light at the end of the tunnel, and there is a lot that people can do um, from outside to, to help us. Uh, at Dakota Women specifically, we've started a PAC um, because we want to get rid of some of these people that have been in the legislature since the beginning of time uh, introducing these bills over and over and over again. Roger Hunt, who's one of the main sponsors of many of the, this these uh, pieces of legislation, uh, was behind almost identical legislation 20 years ago. I mean, you can look at the papers from 1990, 1991, and it, you know, it's it's almost like Groundhog's Day. Um, and so we need to get rid of these people. And so we're uh, working to raise money uh, for our PAC to support uh, pro-choice candidates, progressive candidates, and candidates that consistently will stand up for women so that uh, maybe we can do something to repair our national reputation before next session. That's fabulous. I love the pack. I love that you started that. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping that that's an idea that spreads to other states that are also kind of plagued with this, um, with this kind of, you know, out-of-state instigator problem and then mm -hmm. be, uh, you know, all too willingly <laughs> compliant uh, few within the state who are the, you know, helpers of, of this kind of thing. Um, so can you talk a little more about um, setting up the PAC? Because, um, you know, we at Momocrats, we've thought about, setting up a pack and you know I think unless you have some legal expertise then you know it, it begins to seem some somewhat daunting so um I mean I know your background is as a lawyer so maybe you can talk about that as a, with a little more information than what a lay person would um would come to the issue with well it's actually easier than you would think and obviously mm -hmm. it's going to vary from state to state um in some ways because election laws vary from state to state. Um, and you'll want to check your Secretary of State's website um, to kind of find out exactly what you need to do. But in South Dakota, really, you just start raising money, and then once you uh, raise a certain amount, in this case $500, you've got 15 days to file a report. And, and basically, you know, the main uh, requirements are just to, to file regular reports. Um, saying where the money, you know, is coming from and where it's going. And so, I mean, it's very simple. We set up a PayPal, we opened up a bank account, and we just started raising money. Well, I sure hope that when you have the pack all ready to go to accept donations that you'll let us know. And, in fact, we would love a guest post from you on Mamacrats, you know, kind of talking about it in greater detail, and we'll oh, help absolutely. you get well, the word you out. Can, you yeah. can go to dakotawomen.com right now, and oh, on the right side of our screen there's a Donate button. And Excellent. you can donate through PayPal right there. Great. Um, and anyone who uh, is not comfortable with PayPal can certainly contact us uh, through our contact page, and I can give you an address for sending paper checks because I know not everyone's uh, comfortable with the money through the Internet stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much, Kelsey. Um, you know, we, we really love to hear about all the hard work you're doing on behalf of women in South Dakota and uh, preserving women's rights because – of course, it, um, you know, when there's attack on women's rights in one state, it affects women everywhere. Absolutely, and I think that's an important an important point to kind of hit home. Um, having been through this, you know, now for a number of years with South Dakota being sort of in the spotlight, I think there's a tendency for people in other states to think, you know, oh, it's those crazy people there. Um, but this this kind of craziness doesn't really uh, respect borders and it really does leak into other places. And I think you can even see um, in, you know, what the the 
what Congress is doing right now, the influence of some of this. Right. In, in the uh, Gonzales v. Carhartt opinion, uh, Kennedy takes language that is right out of the South Dakota Task Force to Study Abortion, right out of what Harold Cassidy has been arguing. Um, and so it really is we're all in this together, and mm-hmm. I think people ignore yeah. what happens in South Dakota at their own peril. I agree. And, Kelsey, I think what you're talking about now, about um, ordinary women in South Dakota organizing to form a PAC um, to fight back against the special interest money that's been coming in from out of state to influence your local legislative process, I think that ties in really well to what we were speaking about earlier in the show because we opened uh, with some talk about protests around the world, uh, you know, the revolutions that have been happening in North Africa and the Middle East, and um, tied that into, you know, some of the political protesting that's been going on here. And I think that it's really important here in the United States, especially uh, in the wake of the Citizens United ruling that allows uh, corporations to donate unlimited money to political campaigns and special interest groups um, that do go into states and try to influence local politics. I think that it's really important for ordinary citizens who are concerned to think about organizing a PAC or, you know, going on the internet and speaking their mind, organizing local protests. Because the only way that um, the only way that we can succeed in this ideological battle that's happening right now, you know, that the Republicans are waging, despite being elected on a platform of, you know, fixing the economy and bringing back jobs, here they are, you know, waging war against women's rights. Um, And in my own state, Missouri, you know, we recently had a state senator, my state senator actually, Jane Cunningham, um, try to repeal child labor laws, (laughs) you know, and bring us back to the industrial age. I mean, I I don't know. And so, you know, you have to question what do these things have to do with the everyday business of the state and fixing the economy. And I think that um, the only way that ordinary people can make a a difference is if we do band together um, in support of, you know, individual rights and liberties. So we really appreciate what you're doing. Thanks. That uh, that blows my mind about repealing child labor laws. Unbelievable. Yeah, Yeah, I I have to say that the saner... The senior residents of Missouri are pretty shocked by that too. <laughs> That's my opinion. Um, you know, and I'm, yeah. There's there's a state senator um, in the Missouri state legislature. She's she's actually my own state senator, uh, Jane Cunningham. I like to call her Jane Medieval Cunningham. And she <laughs> she recently, um, you know, proposed a law that would actually repeal right now in the state of Missouri. Um, if you're under 16, you have to get a work permit to work. And mm-hmm. there are certain restrictions, you know, about having to do with child safety and making sure that that your parents know that you're working and making sure that the work conditions are adequate and you're not working in place of going to school, right? Really basic, basic, like 18th century sort of work protections for kids, right? And, um, yeah, a, a local Republican state senator has been trying actively to repeal those issues on the grounds that, you know, this is big government getting involved in the personal lives of families. So, Well, I know that it drives me crazy that my 11-month-old never really, you know, holds up her part of the household expenses. It's really a problem. (laughs) 
Oh, she just takes six to be 15 like mine. Oh. <laughs> uh, I There's one thing, you know, about having sort of your own little lemonade stand or, you know, mowing lawns for cash, but I, there's another thing about, like, having, you know, kids work at McDonald's and, you know, then it sort of opens the door to all kinds of, you know, shouldn't that kid be in school, um, sub-minimum wage, I mean, just all kinds of things that are, we closed the door on that, you know, for good reason, and it was unions that helped us close the door on those work practices, you know, for good reasons, you know, because children were, like, working in mill factories and having their hands mangled and, you know, things like that, right? So, you know... Um Yeah, a lot of people forget that um, all of the benefits that workers enjoy today, even though they keep getting diminished, are the result of the fights that the unions waged back in the 30s and before. Yes. And um, it's it's frightening to see this rabid anti-union, you know, sentiment without people really looking back at the history and what what the consequences are of busting the unions. Yeah. You know? I think that's true. And I have to say in all sincerity, if we are completely honest, people are completely swallowing the Kool-Aid that <laughs> Governor and other opponents throughout the United States are doing this for fiscal reasons. Now, that's true. They're doing it for fiscal reasons, but they're not doing it for fiscal reasons that benefit the citizens of the state. I'm just going to go ahead and go all woo-woo conspiracy theory here and say, in all sincerity, I I, I admit it, I have worked as a non-union worker in many unionized companies, and um, that's just because my profession was not part of the union. I was on the white-collar side. The union was on more of the blue-collar side. And I nevertheless um, thought it really helped overall, and uh, to this day, I subscribe to the AFL-CIO just to see what they're up to, because they're always up to a lot of really well-organized and well-operated plans politically, and so, you know what, I think we boil it down, don't we? I think we know exactly what it is. The AFL-CIO and other unions tend to fund Democrats because they're pro-worker versus pro-big business, and that's not to say they're anti-big business. It's just to say that they are very pro-worker, and they do tend to work more for the average middle-class person and so forth um, and the average citizen. And I think what they're up to right now with this union busting, especially the collective bargaining rights, is exactly what it sounds like. They are trying to get rid of political opponents. Julie, to your point, also, um, I actually am a former union worker when I was in – when I was working my way through college, <laughs> earning my degree, I, I worked uh, as a as a stagehand and as a technical theater assistant, and I was a member of IATSE, the Theatrical Workers Union. And as someone, yay, IATSE, yes. <laughs> and as someone who has worked, you know, in a in a profession that is sort of fundamentally dangerous, <laughs> you know, hanging two hundred pound lights off of catwalks and and things of that nature. I um you know I really appreciated uh belonging to a union and and feeling like I had the collective power of other workers behind me to make sure that the environments that I worked in were safe and they were I have to say I I love my former employers and you know I I've but I think there's this stereotype about union workers that is perpetuated by anti-union folks that 
union union workers, you know, they're lazy and they stick together to get paid for doing nothing. And, you know, I, I have to say, when I was a member of a union, I worked really, really hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and and um, and I wasn't paid uh, very highly, but I, I did love my job, and the union was there to help make sure that I was safe and my coworkers were safe, and that was really important to me. Well, and I'm, I'm a proud co-carrying member of the Writers Guild of America, but that's kind of a weird union. So, um. <laughs> well, what Jay? I worked at American Airlines, and our unions represented, for example, pilots. Why is that important? Because we fly on airplanes flown by these pilots, and the unions bargained collectively for things that made it safer for us too. Things like not overscheduling pilots so that they were deadheading and exhausted while flying planes. What kind of problems do we hear about on the news right now? What's happened is we keep taking the teeth away from unions, and it ends up affecting us all adversely. And I think that I, I say that to say I completely agree with what you say. Union members work very hard, and a lot of the things that we do are there for safety reasons. And I just want to jump in and say that um, teachers' unions especially have been under attack. And... Um, I had the opportunity to speak with someone who actually works for the American Federation of Teachers there in Texas. You know her, Jules. Um, And, you know, I think what a lot of people don't know, I myself, you know, didn't know until recently that teachers' unions have a lot to do in terms of professional development of teachers so that there's a lot of um, sort of internal education that has to do with, um, say, if you're an attorney, you have to, um, you know, keep current on, um, you know, legal decisions and, you know, changes in the various parts of law, et cetera. There's a continuing legal education system here in California. You have to, you know, get credits and take classes and, you know, keep up to date. And the same thing is true with teachers' unions is that they, you know, they they hold these kinds of workshops. Um, You can get accreditation. You can, you know, kind of work on your craft as a teacher. And so that's something that a lot of people um, you know, they just sort of see, like, big, nameless, faceless union. You know, you just sort of see, like, all the T-shirts, you know, and you kind of lose sight of the actual faces, the individual faces, and what it is that that unions actually do, aside from the very important collective bargaining that, um, you know, is, is one of their main pillars. And and so professional development um, is, is another really key thing. And I think there have been studies that have, been coming out um, pointing that um, pointing to the fact that controlling for all, a lot of other factors, uh, which also affect student achievement, but for the most part, it is basically true that the um, ACT and SAT scores of students in states where there are unionized teachers are generally higher than in states where the teachers are not unionized. And I think in part that must be because, you know, the teachers are better paid, they have greater stability, and also in unionized states they have access to these professional development programs so that you're nurturing and cultivating the skills of the teachers so that they can continue to, you know, be on top of the latest educational research and, you know, the the kinds of things that are really great for kids in the classroom. So um, I just wanted to say that uh, given that so that education budgets are really under fire, um, along with this whole talk of state budget cuts and the states in crisis, um, we're, we're getting a lot of that certainly in California. And uh, some of the wealthier school districts are, um, you know, p- 
saying to their parents, um, okay, well, why don't you donate $2,500 per family to the Educational Foundation for, say, La Cañada School District, which is a you know affluent sort of suburb of, of Los Angeles. And that's fine and dandy if those parents can do it, but $2,500 is a lot of money for a lot of people. And if you're not able to do that and you're you want your child to attend a public school and you don't want them in classes of 30 and 40, you know, um, then you're SOL, right, if you don't have that kind of money to pony up. So we're seeing a lot of inequality play out district by district. And, um, you know, what we really need to do is have a statewide solution where, again, we need to increase the revenue and make sure that all of our schools are adequately funded so that we're not having, we're not magnifying the kind of inequality that's out there. And, you know, Cynthia, um, I, something that you just inspired me to think of, too, is that teachers' unions a lot of the time are advocating for what's good for the students, not just what's good for the teachers. They're advocating for smaller class sizes. Yeah. They're advocating for, you know, more support staff and special needs aids for kids with learning difficulties and, you know, um, better better working conditions for the teachers often mean better conditions for the kids. So I think that's really important to think about when we have these discussions about the power of teachers' unions. Yes, absolutely. And so I think we're coming to the close of our show. We have maybe, what, three minutes left. And so I wanted to thank Kelsey again and your 11-month-old for making a guest appearance also. <laughs> yeah, I know. She's she's kind of giving her opinion as well. Oh, thanks no, so much for, for having us. Yeah, it's great to hear her cooing in the background. <laughs> so um, I also wanted to give a shout-out to our sponsor for Mamacrats. Mama Chat, which is Bubble Genius. We love Bubble Genius. Go to bubblegenius.com. They uh, will send you beautiful soaps through the mail, and you can also find store actual store locations where they sell their soaps, and they're, they're just lots of fun. There's green alien soaps. There's bagel soaps. There's all kinds of just really delightful food-looking soaps and quirky kinds of soaps. So, um, And we all know One the politics. Politics is dirty, so we need to get clean. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I want to um, say about Bubble Genius, too, is they've got a wonderful um, Buy a Soldier a Shower campaign where they work with AnySoldier.com, and they said they're, they're just shocked at how many soldiers need soap. Mm-hmm. And so they've had they have a whole line of military soap, including a foobar of soap. And um, so if if even if you are not in the market for beautiful, vegan friendly soaps of your own, let's you know donate some to our soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they will thank you for it. Thanks for mentioning that. And we, Donna and I, are live in the Los Angeles area where Bubble Genius is headquartered, and we're lucky enough to be able to go and visit her later on this morning. So, anyway. So, that's it for our show today. I would like to thank Kelsey Collier, Wise again, and um, Cinematic, thank you. Julie, Julie Piper, and Jaylis Judy. And we will see you back here next week at the same time here on Blog Talk Radio. Bye-bye.